The Leftovers is not over, but perhaps you have not gotten started watching what is, in my opinion, the best show on television right now. So let's get you started here with a special edition of The Leftovers podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler, and I am joined here by a man who suddenly became my BFF the moment 2% of the world's population suddenly departed. Antonio Mazzaro. What's up, buddy? That's all it took. All, all it took was millions and millions of people to disappear into nowhere for you and I to come together, Josh. Their sacrifice was for a greater purpose. Yes. Their name was Gladys. Their name was Gladys. That's right. All right, everybody. Here's here's yeah. what's up. This is this is the Leftovers podcast here on Post Show Recaps. We are doing a special edition of the podcast this week. We're recording this on Thanksgiving Eve, dropping this on Thanksgiving 2015. Uh, it's a different kind of leftovers than probably many of you are experiencing this coming weekend. Antonio, do you have any fun Thanksgiving plans? No, not really. Just eating. Eating lots and lots and lots of eating. Will that be happening for you as well, John? Yeah, yeah. There will be lots and lots of leftovers in my future and hopefully in your futures as well. And what we're trying to do here is, look, Antonio and I, we podcast about the leftovers here on Post Show Recaps. A lot of people listen to it. A lot of people are enjoying what we're doing. We are certainly enjoying what we are doing. But we also know that a lot of people are not watching this show uh, or listening to the podcast. And all it takes is a quick look at the at the viewership of the leftovers, and it's pretty clear. And we... we we want to do what we can to, to fix that. We want some of you people to suddenly arrive to the leftovers. Yeah, and I think that this is our full court press. We love this show so much, and there aren't really people that we've turned on to it. I, I mean, I don't want to speak too much for you, but I haven't heard on your end. There's no one I've turned on to this show that doesn't love it. That's not just a like it thing. That's a love it thing. And so this podcast is really just spoiler free, setting up what the kind of show is from an overview standpoint, what we like about the show, what you like about the show. Some of you uh, who are who, have, who are watching the show, let us know really what you loved about the show. And we want to feature that so that people who aren't watching the show, it's on HBO Go. You can catch up anytime. And now is a perfect time to do it. Uh, we would really love, I think you would really love uh, to catch up uh, and be kind of along for this ride because it's a great ride. Yeah, it's a great ride. And I think that a lot of people are probably seeing, you know, depending on who you follow in terms of TV critics or commentators or anything like that, it's very likely that you're reading a lot of, man, The Leftovers is the best show on TV right now. Wow, this show is really, really good. Season two, transcended television. And Antonio and I, I think, are contributors to that. Uh, I think I'm, I'm not speaking out of school when I say Antonio and I both agree with that sentiment that The Leftovers right now is the best thing you can be watching. Um, I, I love this show so much. I did not always love this show. You guys can actually go back into the archives. We encourage you to do so as you're watching earlier episodes of The Leftovers. You could listen to our first podcast podcasts about the leftovers those are all available at poshorecaps.com slash leftovers itunes so check all of that out antonio and i have been podcasting about this from the very beginning we've been podcasting this uh, podcasting this show since june 29 2014 is our very first podcast i think our very first podcast together antonio at least just you and i on a podcast together it might be did we hold hands i can't remember i don't know if we held hands we were we were quite a distance away me in canadian new york and you in canadian kentucky yes. uh, but we were we were miles and miles away in terms of distance but very close in terms of skype connection and we've been recording podcasts about every single episode of the leftovers ever since uh i think we had a double episode in there somewhere in season one but i can't really Really remember, but you guys can go back and you can listen to that stuff, and you will hear from both Antonio and I a lot of skepticism in those early podcasts, in those first few episodes, because that was what the show was producing at that time. Um, if you would ask me around episode two or three of the first season of The Leftovers, is this show going to be one of the best shows on television? I would have laughed in your face. I really didn't think that it would have been possible. But here we are. We've got two episodes left in season two as we are recording this podcast. And the episode that aired this week called International Assassin, and I will not tell you anything about what happened in that episode. You can go and listen to our nearly two-hour podcast about International Assassin if you are caught up on The Leftovers and want to hear more deep dive analysis of that episode so i won't i won't spoil anything here other than to say that is one of my favorite television episodes of anything ever um and it really it really lit a fire under my butt that made me realize that this show is just not being watched by enough people and really ought to be watched by more people and i really want to do our part here antonio you and i have a platform here where we can really make a case for the show so i think that's what we're going to do today 
Yeah, and I I agree with you that the first the first parts of the first season you hear from a lot of people who started and stopped, who watched a couple of episodes because this is an HBO prestige show, and they really promoted the launch very heavily with some kind of mystical promos with uh, some sort of gospel type singing and people all dressed in white and some weird confrontation that was seen to be happening at a public event and nobody really know what the, knew what the show was and I think some people I'm hearing a lot of people gave it a couple of episodes. And they thought, eh, I don't really like this show. And, and I can understand that, Josh. I, you and I recently rewatched the first episode of The Leftovers. And uh, without getting into any details, because this is totally spoiler free, I think we can see the point behind that. And we can see that the show then, as you were saying, is not at all close to the show now. There, there were this, the kind of roots that, uh, that the show, maybe like, let's say they built the paint by number frame where they, they laid out the framework for the sorts of things that they've built an incredible thing on in the second season and throughout the latter parts of the first. But I think there are a lot of people who watched this, this first season of the leftovers and kind of said, eh, I don't know. And this is also to say to those people, this is really worth sticking with it. Yeah. I think it, you know, you talked about people who you've recommended the show to and people will walk away from it and you very rarely hear anything other than I love this show. I'm obsessed with this show. Um, I don't think that you hear a lot of people who start the leftovers and say this is magnificent. I think that it takes a while. Right. I do think that there is probably a three if not four or five episode threshold to start with that you have to clear before you start getting into the really, 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 really ridiculously good looking stuff. Uh, it's you know that's, that's longer than you want on shows these days. In, in, a, in a world where a lot of shows can just reach out and grab you instantly. I think that there are elements of the early episodes of The Leftovers that are really fascinating. This world that we're talking about on this show is really gripping and it grips you really quick. But the characters, this was one of our chief complaints early on about Chief Garvey and the Garvey family and all the people that are living in Mapleton, New York. They did not reach out and grab us right away. It took a while for us to warm up, you and I, Antonio, to warm up to those characters. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. Um, but yeah. what, I, what I tell people when they are saying i'm interested in watching the leftovers i always warn them get through the first few episodes just push through it's sort of what i say to people about the wire too is the wire takes a little while to hook you because it's very it's very deep it's very in-depth it's very detailed it does not wait for you to catch up it just expects you to be along for the ride and eventually you figure out the pace of the wire and you figure out those characters and you figure out what that show is doing i think you could say the same about the leftovers um, I think that you just really have to you have to be on board for the fact that you're going to have to slowly warm up to the show a little bit. But once you're in the hot zone, man, is it hot? Yeah, real, real hot. It's red hot. It's on fire. Yeah, and it's interesting because the show, from a premise standpoint, is somewhat science fiction-y. Uh, I think that you could look at the premise of this show on a, like maybe a hundred foot view if you just read like a two sentence summary, and it's two percent of the world's population just disappears one day. Uh, it's almost a rapture-like event in that there, there really doesn't seem to be uh, any kind of thing that precedes it. And then all of a sudden, 2% two, 2 of the world's population is just gone. This applies in every country. This applies uh, in every kind of group of population, whether it's celebrities or the super poor or the super rich or whomever. There, no one seems immune. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. 2% of the world's population is just gone. And we see that kind of at the beginning of the series. We see it happening in real time. But really, the show is mostly situated several years after that has happened. And what you're seeing, uh, you know, whether it's a year, two years, or, or in the time that, that has passed since it has happened, um, what you're seeing ultimately is that people are adjusting to the fact that this happened. And you see that manifest in so many different ways. And that's really the world building that the show does. And you don't always get that right away from the jump. And there's isn't always something that I think is clear as you're watching the show, like, oh, X and Y are acting this way because that horrible thing happened. But that's really at the basis of what what is going on with every character that you meet, every setting that you kind of encounter. You have to keep in mind that, all these things are occurring in a world where people just randomly disappeared. And so that, uh, that really is the basis for everything that goes after that. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's, there's a line in a recent episode of the show, which isn't spoiling anything other than to say that this is a line of dialogue that somebody speaks, that the world, and this is paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but the world cosmically 
made, it, it was made cosmically abundantly clear that love is extinct, uh, that, that families are, are broken and, and attachment, emotional attachment isn't, isn't solid anymore. And that's the kind of universe that these characters inhabit where maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. That's a very grim worldview. Um, but it, it takes place in this world where the vast majority of people are wondering those types of questions. There's this very big cosmic question that has now been posed for the entirety of the population of everybody who was left behind other than the 2% that really just upped and vanished. No one knows what happened to them. And it's not like they got up and all collectively walked away somewhere. They literally just vanished into thin air. Um, and imagine that in your world where people just are suddenly gone. Um, it's a, you know, it's a big metaphor for inexplicable loss in life, which is something that we do encounter in our world. We don't just have people who suddenly vanish into thin air necessarily, but we do lose people. We do have people who die in our lives who just die very quickly and abruptly without explanation. And it leaves you with a lot of feels as the kids would say, the kids of Mapleton, I think would say that. Um, and, and it's, it's intense and it's really, it's really deep and it's really, it's really hardcore. And there's a lot of grieving that must be done in many, many different ways surrounding events like that. And that's what the show really dives into. And I think that the characters are all dealing with this constantly in their very specific, unique, individual ways. But everybody is dealing with loss on some level, and that makes it a very intense show. And yet, it's a very pleasurable show on so many other, on so many other levels. Yeah, I mean, it's really rewarding. It's interesting because you talk about the characters and how individuals are reacting to loss. But you also kind of see in the kind of background how systems are reacting to loss, how groups of people are reacting to loss, how uh, the this how society in general is kind of looking at this thing. And that is a, the kind of fascinating thing that's happening really kind of in the background of a lot of, especially the first season stuff. And so you'll see something and not necessarily understand the significance of it until as we were just talking about, you put the lens on where you're like, oh, well, this is through, you know, in a world where the departure happened, that makes a lot of sense. And so that's going on and that's all great. But the first season really focuses on Mapleton, New York, a very small town uh, that has, you know, it, normal systems, police, mayor, fire, high school kids, uh, people that go to church, all of it. Uh, it's got all of those things happening and you see how kind of each of those things are reacting to this. And what the show quickly turns into, without spoiling anything, is it turns into this sort of classic kind of philosophical analysis of looking to different systems or sources for answers when we have something that's unexplained. So, of course, there is a sort of deeper dive uh, and a rumination on the role religions play uh, at a time like this, when there's unexplained mystical loss or these horrible events that happen. Uh, of course, people are talking about science, and there is kind of a distant view of what science is reacting to this. And po political systems are, are in play. Uh, the, the police systems are in play. I mean, imagine a world where you all of a sudden something happens that you that you n don't know if it's ever going to happen again. You don't know maybe, maybe what caused it. Uh, you maybe feel personally responsible for the, the departure. You feel not at all personally responsible, like nothing you do could ever matter in a world where things can just disappear without warning. Uh, and that impact, you know, is shown on animals. It's shown on just everything that we encounter as a society. And it gets, it gets deeper than that. It gets into how different cultures and different parts of the world are reacting to it and how, how larger towns are reacting to it, how businesses are cropping up that are sort of cottage industries in response to the departure, how insurance companies are looking at it, how the government kind of responds. So it quickly becomes this much bigger thing that still at its core is also really manifesting on an emotional level on these very kind of limited group of characters that we encounter and follow, um, most of whom are surrounding the Garvey family, uh, which is Justin Thoreau playing Kevin Garvey, uh, who uh, and his his wife is Lori Garvey. Uh, his daughter is Jill Garvey, uh, and then there are other people that are kind of in the Garvey sphere uh, that I don't want to get really too much into about what role they play. But um, you really see the the emotional impact play out on the members of the Garvey family in myriad ways, and the choices that those characters make in response to the departure. I think that's where the emotional heft really comes from, at least at the beginning. And then, of course, you align with other characters, and it gets better and better and better. 
Yeah, I think that it's interesting that you talk about the systemic, you know, implications of what is called the sudden departure uh, here in the world of the leftovers and how it influences uh, politics and religion and big, big concepts like that. But it really is focused on this core group of characters, the Garveys and the people that are surrounding the Garveys. And like I said earlier, at first, you don't really know what to make these people. They're also damaged. They're also battered. They're also angry. They're so angsty. Uh, nobody's getting along. It takes a minute for you to realize why that's the case. You know, once you really do start to appreciate the gravity of the world that these characters inhabit, you kind of get to a point of, oh, yeah, well, I get it. I I would probably be a grump as well. Uh, As the series progresses, these characters really thaw, for me at least. They really thawed for me where you start to get them. You start to get who they are at a really human level. You get to see them in some of their private moments. You get to see them interacting with new characters who had already been established but hadn't been in this orbit quite yet. And the way that they weave in and out of each other's lives is really, really spectacular. Um, and it's all really propelled by phenomenal, phenomenal performances. I think that that is another piece of this show that really can't be understated is the acting on The Leftovers is so top-notch to the point that we've said on multiple podcasts in season two and covering season two that a lot of these other dramas, a lot of these other shows, a lot of the actors on uh, different shows on different networks really might want to consider sitting out of the Emmy race this year because there are just such masterclass performances happening in season two especially of The Leftovers that really just blow your mind. Justin Thoreau, Carrie Coon, Regina King, just delivering some of the best works of their careers and of anybody on TV right now. Um, so the the character problem that is very much there in those first couple of episodes of the show really does give way. And when it gives way, it gives way in a big way. It gives way in a really mondo way where you are really hooked into what is going on with Kevin Garvey, what is going on with him, what, how is he dealing with loss. And more than that, it's it's what's going on in a character like that's mind, you know, is what he's seeing real, is what he's seeing imagined. And so there is sort of this supernatural occurrence or inexplicable occurrence that takes all of these people off of the planet, but you don't know you don't know why that happened you don't know how it happened it could be explained by science it could be explained by something that's beyond our comprehension and we just don't know and that sort of idea gets applied to characters on a real micro level as well as the macro level and that's where the show for me gets really really interesting and season two especially has leaned into that in a heavy way yeah, and and it really is a, a character show. As much as we talk about the world building, and as much as we that that is a very a kind of fascinating piece of this, and some of that comes from the source material. Tom Parada wrote the novel, a best-selling author uh, called The Leftovers. It it really that that source material encompasses season one. It it, it does not. It is different in season two. It's a it's a different point. Uh, they're covering things that weren't in the original source material, and so. That 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 kind of focus of the world building and kind of ex- exploring everything that plays out that is a, a large part of the fir- of, of the book because the book is really I think about these sorts of events that happen in our worlds like nine eleven or nat- horrible natural disasters that really are almost too big to comprehend and that have a profound impact on the way we live our lives on on the grander scale and on our daily lives and. So I think that so much of season one is wrapped up in that. Season two, being kind of freed of that source material, even though it's great, is free to kind of ruminate and take on much larger questions about why, you know, how we've done sorts of things throughout history in this regard, uh, how things are built up and formed around events like this, uh, where religions really come from, why people rely on them, uh, those sorts of cultural touchstones uh, that other shows on TV really aren't discussing. I mean, this is... uh, this is some heady stuff. It gets into mythology and, and all those things. And if, and if all this is sounding a little familiar to you, uh, because you're familiar with the television show Lost. Can you is, believe that we've made it almost 20 <laughs> minutes into this thing and we've said loss a lot, but this is the first yeah, time anyone said lost. I can believe it. Uh, because this is a, it is a fundamental part of the leftovers that there is such shared DNA with Lost. Damon Lindelof, of course, one of the co-showrunners of Lost. Uh, and, you know, the, the one kind of who t- has taken the brunt of any of the criticisms leveled at that show uh, and probably not fairly received the credit for anything that that show did well. Um, Damon Lindelof is the showrunner of this show. 
And it is, it is impossible to talk about The Leftovers, if you're familiar with Lost, without at least talking about the Lindelof influence uh, and where this show kind of fits in, in the kind of continuum of Damon Lindelof. That's, if, if you want to say that Lost is on, a, you know, on the left side of it and we're proceeding along toward the right, um, Josh, where is The Leftovers in comparison to Lost? And, and what do you say to those critics who, who were dissatisfied with, with Lost at some point because of all the questions and none of the answers and and how does the leftovers fit in that kind of spot you know before we uh before we started podcasting today we put out a call to people on twitter saying why are you watching the leftovers why why do you like the show why do you what what is it about the show that you love and the the absent question in asking that question is why are you not watching the leftovers and we ended up hearing from a lot of those people uh and a bunch of those people would say uh renee herrera for instance friend of the podcast said uh i'm I'm such a spiteful damon lindelof hater that i can't trust lost gordon holmes prolific survivor blogger wrote in as well and said, I'm not watching it because I don't trust Damon Lindelof. And I think that that exists. I think a lot of people who were really big into Lost, which was this huge cultural phenomenon for six years uh, that dwindled over the years, but started enormously. And even in the end was still many times over bigger than what the leftovers is right now in terms of viewership. A lot of people left that experience feeling burned. They left that experience feeling like, questions, these high concept questions about this magical island in the middle of nowhere uh, with this seemingly high purpose and this seemingly deep, deep, deep history that never really gets addressed ends in such a way that is disappointing for a very at least vocal minority, if not a majority of people who were into that show. A lot of people feel really burned and Damon Lindelof's reputation Stemming from that, I think, is what it is to the point that this is a guy who is basically chased off of Twitter. Uh, this is a guy who has dealt with a lot of angry fans of his show, and I don't think completely unjustified in many cases. Maybe the level of vitriol could be turned down a little bit, but I understand the people who feel disappointed with this show that they thought was one thing suddenly vanishing and turning into something else. Um, incidentally, that's kind of, in a way, the creative drive behind The Leftovers, I think. I think for Damon Lindelof, you know, he's adapting this book that's written by Tom Parada that is about all of the events that The Leftovers depicts, uh, at least season one. Season one fully adapts Tom Parada's book, and season two is exploring those themes in a completely new story that was not addressed in that book with the same characters from the show. Um, but I think for Lindelof, whether he would admit it or not, whether he knows it or not, it feels very much like this show is addressing Lindelof's own reaction to Lost, where it was this big thing that so many people loved and adored and suddenly turned on. Um, I think that Lindelof is doing a lot of the things that he was doing on Lost when Lost was at its absolute best, and he is doing them more fully here. Um, he is doing it without the pressure of millions and millions and millions and millions of people watching what he is doing, watching the story that he is creating. He has a much smaller audience here. He has a lot more creative freedom with this being on HBO rather than a network show like ABC. He is able to drop F-bombs. He is able to have uh, sexual situations, nudity, extreme violence when the when the occasion calls for it and really more than anything he's just able to kind of tell this story without the pressure of so many eyeballs on it at least that's how i view it and i think that a lot of the themes that he explored on lost are getting repeated here man of science man of faith a central question on lost is very much a central question here on the leftovers especially in recent episodes of season two um so i think that people who who didn't like lost i i understand the people from that perspective who are having trouble wrapping their heads around getting into the leftovers. What I would say to those people is I think that Lindelof is playing to Lost's greatest strength, which was always asking questions and creating compelling mysteries. Delivering the answers was always a little bit of the trick for me. I didn't think that every answer that he delivered on that show was terrific or profound or expertly thought out or, you know, even worth addressing to begin with. I think now what what's really fascinating about the leftovers is right up front Lindelof is is saying about this show he says in interviews early on in the production of the show and anytime he releases a statement or gives the rare appearance or interview now he makes it clear that you're never going to find out 
what happened with the sudden departure. You're never going to find out where all these people went or why they went or how they went. Um, that's never getting answered on this show. So that takes something off the table immediately. Whereas with Lost, it was what is the island? Why is it here? What is its purpose? They never said, well, we're not going to answer that stuff. Here, that the, the equivalent of those questions is being told to you right up front, we're not going to answer that stuff. I think what's interesting about The Leftovers right now that is starting to reveal itself is that that's not entirely true. I think the real answer is uh, not that we're never going to tell you what the central mysteries of this show, uh, what, what they mean and why they exist and why these things happen. I think that we're being presented with a ton of answers, but different answers, conflicting answers, but all of them valid answers, and it depends on where you land on this sort of faith versus science spectrum. Um, the show is providing viewers with a lot of different possible interpretations for the things that are happening on the show, and all of them are equally valid. Your read on the show can be very, very flexible from viewer to viewer, and it doesn't mean that any one of you guys are wrong. Um, so that's a really, really tricky balancing act that a guy like Lindelof, who has taken a lot of licks and a lot of beatings over this type of storytelling in the past, has decided to step right up to the plate again, and in his next television and endeavor following Lost, has, has decided to double down on those themes. Yeah. I, I think it's really, really brave storytelling. It is, it is being accomplished in my opinion, beautifully. Um, and I think that a lot of Lost haters, if they gave it a shot, the people who who started off as Lost fans and soured on the show later on, I think that there's a lot here that you would actually really, really, really like and appreciate. Yeah, it is a brazen, unabashed uh, embrace of the haters in that regard. It's basically just giant middle fingers, freedom rockets to the world saying, I'm going to make a show that doesn't really answer the questions, but by providing you with multiple options will allow you to think about yourself and the way that you think about the world and the way that you try to explain the unexplained and the way that you're comfortable with answers and the things that you're not comfortable with. And in, in it really is a show that because it is hammering on so many levels in terms of it's just destroying and displaying such wonderful performances from an acting standpoint. It's really killing it from a cine, uh, cinematographer, you know, cinematic graphic, or let's just say the way that it looks is beautiful. The beautiful way the show, the way that it's directed is beautiful. The music is fantastic. Like all of the things that are going on in the show provide such a fertile jumping ground for you to kind of exist in. If you want to engage in this sort of, world analysis or self-analysis, if you want to engage in the sort of philosophical debate over uh, whether the sun, you know, setting in the morning or setting at night and showing up every morning is proof of science or proof of God. And you can get into all those things in your head when you think about the leftovers, but you can also just enjoy it on all those other levels and not really worry about those things. And I think that that's a, that's the fascinating part. We had a great tweet uh, when we asked kind of people why they were watching one of my favorite Twitter users, cat caps tweeted at us and said, how do you say perfection, life, love, mystery, science, and faith watching with awe and amazement. And I think that that's a, a pretty great summary of, of how I feel about the leftovers there. It really is touching on all those things. I, I joke that it's about life, the universe and everything, which of course is kind of a shout out to Douglas Adams and the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. But it is also truly what the leftovers is, is how can a show be about those things? It's crazy. This is just taking place in small towns, but no, that's absolutely what it's about. It exists on those planes but it is also delivering on a week-to-week -week basis in an enthralling way that just really keeps you watching and enraptured. Um, and that builds over the course of the first season. The first season, you're getting through some parts of the world that it's building, and you're like, I, I really don't like how X is happening, or I really don't like the way Y is reacting to these events. And I'm really angry about you know Z's uh, intentions in this show. Uh, and they're just part of the tapestry that The Leftovers is weaving. And once I think you start to appreciate the the threads that are being used in this tapestry, once you appreciate the way it looks overall, um, then those individual parts uh, or sections of it uh, won't strike you as unnecessary and, in fact, may strike you as vital. Uh, and I think that that's really kind of the fascinating thing about The Leftovers is you're right, the, 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 the haters of the criticism of the show lost. Uh, I can understand why people were frustrated with that because the bargain was never really truly struck between the creators of that show and the viewers. And a lot of the time, the creators of that show were having fun with the viewers. 
by kind of dragging mysteries out or introducing an answer that created another question. And with this particular show, uh, when Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada kind of stepped up to the plate in season one, they said, we're not going to explain this. It's not going to happen. And I think you're right. The sneaky thing that they've done is they've opened the door for you to explain it and, and, and to let your kind of frame and what you bring to the table already, what you bring to the show because of your worldview, uh, help provide your explanation for it. And in that way, it's a far more fascinating show because it touches on the heart, the imagination, the soul, the brain, uh, everything that you kind of bring to the table when you watch these episodes uh, is manifested on screen if you let it be. And there aren't too many shows that just deliver like that. It really is an engaging experience. Uh, it's immersive. Um, it, it's just it, like Chet Adams tweeted at us and says it uses all facets of production, cinematography, acting, music, story, etc., to make me feel emotions other shows can't. And I think that's really the key part is that all those things that are, that are so highly successful on this show work together to pierce uh, the kind of veil that we might keep around ourselves as we watch television. This show gets inside you. It sticks on you. And I think it's really kind of a fantastic show in that regard. And there just aren't other shows like it uh, that on television. And that does mean it can be really bleak and depressing. Bleak. Bleak. Yeah. Real bleak. Yeah. Bleak alert. Bleak alert. <laughs> Wiggler bleak alert. It can yeah. be, it can be very bleak and depressing. It can be, uh, just nihilistic. And uh, look, we all can be. All of the things that we can be are in- encompassed in this show. There are moments of happiness. There are moments of, you know, just nihilism and disaster. There are moments of depression. There are moments of elation. It, it really runs the gamut. And the, the way the actors are playing out all those emotions is just so, so good that it is it is able to capture even in the the small it is able to capture the divine yeah i mean it's very real in that way you know and that's funny to say about a show that takes place in a world where two percent of the you know human population just like that snap gone uh that there's something very very real going on but there's something very raw and honest about the way that people deal with the unexplained and the way that people deal with loss that i think really connects with many viewers uh anyone who has really gone through extraordinary tragedy or has lost somebody due to circumstances that were completely if not unpredictable then you know shocking or surprising or jarring or sudden um you know i i dealt with the loss of a family member late last year early this year basically uh and it was very very difficult and out of nowhere for me uh and i and i often find myself watching season two of this show and feeling a lot of the same feelings that i was feeling at that time just angry frustrated completely confused totally bewildered just downright sad but then i laugh in the face of a lot of it too like it it does this amazing thing where it, it 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 as you said, it sticks on you. It, it goes inside of you uh, and, and reaches in and pulls out your guts. And sometimes you can't help but laugh at the fistful of stuff inside of you that this thing is dangling in front of your face. So it really does just draw on a, a wide range of personal experiences that you can connect with, that you can relate back to that show in a way that I think is really daring and honest and unlike other shows on television. Um, you know, there are definitely shows where in terms of storytelling, you know, the hero doesn't always make it because the hero did a stupid thing so that hero is going to get betrayed by somebody close to them and that's just the way that life is going to go and that's really excellently done and really brilliantly done but i don't think a show like that necessarily is dealing with grief and trauma in the way that the leftovers is and i think that the leftovers is kind of singular in that way right now on television so all that stuff is really good i want to drill down to the characters a little bit more antonio just get you to talk about some of your favorites both in terms of the characters and the performances just to call out a few of them individually who really speaks out to you on the leftovers that you think a bunch of people would really relate to or people would just be really drawn to yeah that's a good question because each character brings kind of a lot of things to the table uh the first episode introduces several characters which i think are important to kind of mark over the course of the series uh, nora durst is one of my favorites personally nora durst is a mother uh who lost everyone in her family she lost her two children and her husband in the departure and that's uh that's mentioned sort of in passing in the first episode and she's there to kind of give a speech and on a remembrance day uh, for all those that had been departed or had had disappeared. And so she pops up there, and then uh, throughout the course of the first season, especially she's uh, comes in more into kind of the 
the story that's occurring within the city because she's a resident of the city and she's got a little bit of notoriety and there are things that play out with Nora Durst. She's played by the actress Carrie Coon. I'm not sure how familiar people will be with Carrie Coon. I guess her, her kind of um, most notable role was that she played Ben Affleck's sister in Gone Girl. Uh, the kind of uh, she was the irascible kind of constantly calling him out for his activities that were going on in that movie. Uh, and that that I guess was would you say that that's probably her most uh, notable role? Yeah, I would say by far uh, her as Ben Affleck's sister in Gone Girl, which she's really, really great. In. And if you've seen Gone Girl and you liked that character, she is out of this world on this show. Yeah. And then, I mean, she's good as Margot uh, in that movie. I mean, there's, you know, there's limited things that she gets to do in that movie, but she just brings so much depth to, to her role. Obviously someone who has experienced such incredible loss like that uh, is going to be somebody who has a lot of sadness or darkness in them. And you see, obviously some of that play out, but the fact that she's able to soldier on and the reason she's able to soldier on, I think really are what make Nora Durst fascinating. And Carrie Coon is, just an incredible actress uh, and and really delivers on this show. Uh, there are other characters that I really like. I, I love Christopher Eccleson uh, as Matt, uh, the local reverend in the town of Mapleton, who has some issues with the departure, as you can imagine. A reverend might, uh, whether he sees it as a spiritual event or whether he's comfortable with the way others are representing it as a spiritual event. Uh, reverend Matt's story over the course of season one is a fascinating one as well. Uh, and he is somebody who, clearly because he is a man of faith, uh, feels certain ways about things that are happening in the town uh, and people's responses to the departure. Uh, and so that is really great to watch play out. Christopher Eccleson plays that role, famous, of course, for playing Doctor Who, uh, among other things. And he is uh, he's, he's just a real asset to the show uh, when he does get to kind of pop into the action. And, of course, you've got... Kevin Garvey, uh, Kevin Garvey played by Justin Thoreau, the multifaceted, multi-talented Justin Thoreau. Kevin Garvey is. Congratulations, Kevin. Congratulations, Kevin. Yes. Congratulations. You've done it, uh, through no fault of your own. Uh, you've, you've managed to, uh, you stick out. So good for you, Kevin, uh, Kevin and, uh, fantastic, fantastic performance by Justin Thoreau as well. He's the local police chief in Mapleton. As we mentioned, his family is sort of at the center of the actions, uh, in season one uh, and what happens in Mapleton there. And he is, he's issues. He has some issues of his own. Uh, and it's very quickly established in the first episode that a lot of what's going on in the leftovers is going to be about the issues that Kevin has, both as a man of the law, uh, but also as a man who uh, is maybe has maybe not kind of opened his eyes to the way the departure uh, has impacted uh, his life and the town that he lives in. He's sure about a couple of things, but he's not sure about a lot of things. And the things he's not sure about really drive his actions uh, whenever he's on screen. So that's great. Uh, I left a few characters out here because I love them all, but I wanted to ask you, Josh, who that I didn't mention or, or among the ones that I did also stick out to you. Well, yeah, it's an interesting show in that really the antagonist is this cosmic incident that happened that has really just punched everybody in the world in the face. Whether or not they are realizing when they look in the mirror that they have a black eye or not, everybody's got a black eye, and it's from this shared incident. Um, I think that there is, you know, the closest thing to a human antagonist is probably Patty Levin, who is the leader of a group called Guilty Remnant in Mableton, New York. It's a group of people that are, uh, they, they chain smoke, they don't talk, they stand around, they, uh, they sabotage events of people who are trying to remember the people who departed. They're nuisances. They They're wear all white. They wear all white. They're a pack of nuisances. They smoke to remember. Uh, they don't speak and their leader is Patty Levin and she's played by Anne Dowd, who is, you know, a prolific actress who perhaps most recently you would remember from being the person who made flowers with the Yellow King on True Detective. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and sorry to remind you or to alert you to that if you didn't know. Um, she is spectacular. She is spectacular. She is rare in The Guilty Remnant in that she being in a leadership role, is allowed to speak from time to time, or uh, whether or not she's allowed to speak, she speaks. She doesn't She doesn't take that vow of silence completely strictly. The types of dialogue, the, the scenes that, that are surrounding Patty, the, the, the monologues she delivers, the interactions she has with characters who are both on her side and are firmly against her, are some of the most dramatic and intense scenes that I've seen since this show has premiered. She is spectacular. She's probably the closest thing to a human antagonist on the show. Although 
although there are some other candidates as well, and this is where we start to get into season two territory a little bit with characters like the Murphy family, which is the family um, at the heart of season two in this small town of Miracle, Texas, which is where much of the show of season two is taking place. I don't know how much we can or want to talk about that stuff, Antonio, but I think that it's important to touch on at least to some degree to say that season two looks very differently and is probably receiving critical accolades in a way that season one didn't get looks very differently from season one for a very specific reason in that a lot of things change between seasons one and season two. Um, can you, can you talk about that in sort of broad strokes and why you think season two, especially right now, even though it's viewership is way down from where it was in season one, the, the chatter and the noise surrounding the show seems to be louder and more positive than ever before. And really, overwhelmingly positive surrounding season two why do you think that is and and what can you do to to sell people on on this season what they've been hearing about? yeah it, it really it comes down to the fact that you're talking about the guilty remnant uh, in season one with with patty uh, and with ann dowd uh as a kind of a depression troll cult uh they're really just trying to get people to react and respond to the events instead of kind of going on with their normal lives and uh that people might want to do you know the way that you try to forget depression or grief or whatever is you just try to soldier through it and move on a lot of the time and the guilty remnant doesn't want people to do that they don't think that that's honoring the events and they don't think that it's proper to do that and they think people need to wake up and not not really kind of look into any of that and i mean it seems pretty clear that that's what they're doing they're you know even from the first episode of the show that's pretty much their stated intent um, and what's interesting about that is in Mapleton, New York, of course, it's a small town where, like other small towns, they had a statistical percent of their population just disappear. Uh, and there is, doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. There's obviously investigations of that. But the, there's a statistical kind of city where that happened. Season two uh, moves away from Mapleton by and large uh, and is really more situated in this area called Jardin, Texas, and the special thing about Jardin, Texas, is it's become a national park called Miracle National Park because around 10,000 people live in Jardin, Texas, and not a single one of them disappeared uh, on the disappear on the departure day. Not a single one, uh, which has been ruled by science and math and all of it to be completely statistically anomalous. Like there's no real reason it should have happened. It is an impossibility uh, statistically that this would have happened with the percent of their population. So a lot of people obviously believe there's something very special about this place of Miracle, Texas. A lot of people flock there for that reason. They make pilgrimages there. Uh, and season two kind of takes place mostly behind the doors or the gates of that great, you know, miracle city of Jardin, Texas. And then you start to find out the layers of that city and beneath those layers did great things really happen? Is it truly a miraculous city? How do the people there respond to it? And so that is a, a really fascinating thing about season two. And you really get a look at the way the world looks at that particular uh, miracle city and the way the world wants to kind of impart their kind of problems and bring everything that they're burdened by to this miracle place and get there. Uh, there's just a whole camp of pilgrims living outside the gates of the city trying to get in. And that's the weirdest group of people you could possibly imagine. Uh, so it, it's all very fascinating stuff that, that takes place in season two, That the stuff that's situated in Miracle. And then, of course, the stuff that's not situated in Miracle in season two uh, is still connected to the kind of the events that are happening, either with our characters uh, or with the things that are happening in the city. So that's also obviously great stuff. And as we said, the show is delivering on levels that are, you know, on every level that exists when you're talking about creating art. So in that regard, anything that they're doing in this second season is great. One of the things that is sort of a weakness of the first season that I think in some instances prevents its emotional heft from always coming across is that in most of the episodes, I would say a majority of the episodes, multiple storylines are followed, multiple points of view are followed. It's much more like a standard television show in that you're getting scenes with, with different characters at different parts. And so 
you may really love the storyline with X character and then Y character shows up on your screen and you're like, what, why are we following this character again? Our podcast throughout season one, we lament a lot of that. We kind of poke fun at some of Holy the, uh, yeah, we poke fun at some of the aspects of it without getting into too much spoilers. Uh, but yeah, that is, uh, that is absolutely, um, that is absolutely a kind of a weakness of the first season is that if you don't like some of the storylines, the times we do spend with those storylines just feel like maybe they're not really adding to the show overall. Season two really shifts that dynamic and focuses mainly on what is one of the show's strengths in season one when they do it, which is sticking with singular points of view throughout the course of an episode. So where you follow essentially one character's actions throughout and season two's done a phenomenal job of kind of showing overlapping of those things. So you maybe see the events of one particular day through one character's eyes or one set of characters' eyes in the first episode. Then the second episode, you see the very similar events through a different character's set of eyes. And I think that that leads to this sort of confirmation bias and, you know, the things that are present in the brain. Like, oh, when I was watching it from their point of view, I thought that that was a bad thing. But now that I'm watching it from someone else's point of view, I understand why it happened and so forth and so on. So not only are they doing a great job with all the things we've talked about, but just the way the show is structured in season two is a revelation for uh, this show to really deliver on the things that it does well. And I think that it's really just a matter of the show finding its stride, I think, and recognizing, well, when we did X, Y, and Z in, se- X, y, and Z in season one, it was really great. So we're going right. to focus on that sort of thing in season two a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at this episode from season one, episode six, Guest, which is uh, a real showcase for the aforementioned Nora Durst, Carrie Kunis, Nora Durst, as probably that was the episode that uh, first really stood up and saluted me, you know, in terms of these, in terms of this, this series, in terms of episodes that really just, I couldn't look away from. And I knew that there was something special going on here when this show was firing on all cylinders. And I think that a lot of the lessons from guest, which is very, very heavily the episode of one character, um, those lessons were applied for every episode of season two thus far to the point that every episode of season two, it feels like the show is better than the last. And it's hard to fathom each week how the next episode is possibly going to be better than the episode that preceded it. And yet somehow that feeling is there almost all the time. I don't know if like you look at it from the long view once we're out of season two and you look at all the episodes, if you would necessarily rank them. Uh, first off, I don't know that you would want to rank them anyway, uh, but I don't know that you would necessarily say that each subsequent episode was better than the one before it. But there is that feeling of just building tension and building excitement and building uh, intensity and quality throughout season two that is really stemming from this decision to go even further down the rabbit hole of making a micro microscopic look at some of these characters' lives um, and really restraining things to just a few perspectives per episode. I think it was a really smart choice that was a direct response to some of the strongest stuff in season one, and it's really, really paid off. Um, One of the other things that's interesting about season two is, yes, there's this shift to Miracle Texas, and it comes in the form of a first episode, a season two premiere that basically centers on characters we've never met. Um, Characters that we're meeting for the very first time in the season two premiere, the Murphy family, which is, uh, as Antonio and I have noted a lot in our podcasting about season two, kind of an analog uh for the garvey family um the patriarch john murphy has a lot of problems that kevin garvey could obviously relate to uh erica murphy the matriarch of the family has a lot in common with other characters as well and the children as well um and it seems like a lot of the situations that are surrounding these people are analogous to what we are getting from the garvey family but they're totally different in terms of characters that we had never met before they have very very bright big personalities they're excellently portrayed they are instantly compelling the moment that we are uh you know cast into their into their lives and it's just it seemed it feels like a different show almost immediately with that season two premiere um and when we started talking about that antonio and we started talking to some people who maybe weren't watching the leftovers at least in my interactions with some people i had gotten the question of oh so can i just watch season two of the leftovers without having watched season one and the answer is a hard no I think. Oh, I think, very hard. I think the answer is a very hard Absolute no. Wouldn't, no. Wouldn't that be nice because season two is the sweet stuff? I mean, there's great, great stuff in season one, but I think you and I would both agree that everything in season two so far has eclipsed season one. Yeah, unquestionably. And um, but you but you cannot watch season two without having seen season one, and I'll I'll let you speak to why. 
Well, I mean, there just are there are a lot of metaphoric connections, but there also are some direct literal connections. And I think that when you go back and watch, kind of knowing what's happening in season two, when you go back and watch season one, the the arcs that are really the prominent arcs of season two really are uh, the prominent arcs of season one. I just don't think that. At the time, we realized where they would go with the stories that were being played out in season one. Uh, but seeing kind of how all those things happen, uh, they're not only germane to the action in season two. I think that they're heavily, uh, the season two heavily relies on what was set up in the first season. So I think it not only will be an emotionally rewarding experience, not only are there of the, of the 10 episodes of the first season, uh, not only are probably half of them, uh, very, very, very good episodes of television, some of them great episodes. Uh, but at there, the stories that are present there, uh, are really kind of key to the, the things that happen in season two, both from a literal and metaphoric standpoint. Uh, and I think that that can't be ignored. Um, they're just, it just can't. This is not the, even though we, we have a great change in location, even though we introduce a ton of new characters and we lose a lot of the characters that are prevalent in season one, um, the, it, you just can't do it. You can't. Yeah. You got to go to upstate New York. Got to go to upstate New York. You got to start in upstate New York, which is where Antonio and I started this thing. And it's a recurring joke that we've said throughout a lot of Leftovers podcasts, not so much recently, but a lot in season one. But I think also just in terms of podcasting, if you're a regular post-show recaps listener, you've listened to a bunch of stuff, but you haven't listened to our Leftovers stuff, then you're probably familiar with Antonio and I from other things. But this really was where the bromance was born. Uh, Antonio and I, we did a lot of podcasting about Justified. That was incredibly, incredibly fun. We've been doing a lot of podcasting here on most shows recaps. Capped. Once upon a time, we podcasted about a show called The Strange. We don't really talk about that anymore. But I think that the that the leftovers really really brought you and I together, and it's been one of one of my most favorite creative collaborations that I've had. So I think that on top of the leftovers being really good, let me just go out on a limb and say I think that our leftovers podcasting is pretty special as well. Yeah, and I'm, I, I I agree, especially our season two stuff. And if you if you like the th- the things that we do here on post show recaps, and you're not already listening to the leftovers stuff, I. Every one of those podcasts is available in our archives. You can download the Rob has a podcast app and you can stream them through the post show recaps section of that app. You can pull them up on the show pages at postshowrecaps.com. They're all in the RSS feed that we have for this show. You can catch them all. They're all postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. And that entire feed has every single episode of leftovers that we've done. So you can definitely check it out that way and you can subscribe there and you'll never miss a leftovers podcast. Yeah. And it's, this is not, I mean, we're not doing this little short podcast here although it's ending up not short uh which is not a surprise uh you you know you can we're not doing this to promote our podcast in any way i mean this is really for me i mean that's not entirely true but (laughs) it's not not the sole purpose it's not the sole purpose the sole purpose is that more people should be watching this show if you're listening to us already if you're a fan of what we do at post show recaps Odds are you're really going to like this show if you give it a chance. And I think that's more than anything what it comes down to. It is not a show for everyone. It is a show that, uh, that it is not, it doesn't ask questions. Uh, it doesn't kind of hold hands. Like I mentioned Colin Stone earlier, Colin tweeted and said, he watches, he hasn't, he's just caught up on the leftovers. He says he's, he's enjoyed the leftovers because it's a fascinating exploration of the human condition that gives its audience a ton of credit. And I think that that is true, very, very true, that it gives its audience a ton of credit. But because of that, I don't think it gives its audience a ton of hand-holding either. And I think for some people that can be frustrating. And this is not the show that you can kind of put on in the background while you're doing your laundry, and uh, it's going to resonate the same way as if you kind of put the show on and sit down and really give it your full attention. This is a show that... Whatever you invest in it, whatever you bring to it, it's going to pay you back. And it's not a it's not a phone show. It's no. not an iPhone show. It's not even an iChoke show. You don't want to be playing any with your anything with your weird apps while you're watching the show. You <laughs> want to your focus. weird apps. Your weird, with your weird apps. Yes. Yes. Yeah, now pay attention. Yeah, that's not happening. This is this is not what that this show brings to the table. What it does bring to the table is, as I said, life, the universe, and everything. It really brings to the table the kind of eternal questions that mankind has tackled since the beginning of time. And the answers that we've provided to those questions since the beginning of time are some of the same answers that these characters are struggling with in the kind of milieu or realm that they exist in where 2% of the world's population just randomly disappeared. And yeah, it, it is a sociological show about the impact that that's had on 
cultures and systems and institutions and all of it, but it is also an interpersonal show uh, and the impact that it's had on the very kind of small level of one man or one woman uh, and their kind of relations to other people. And that's fascinating. And you can imagine how that's fascinating when you go to season two to a town where no one disappeared. Uh, do these people feel invulnerable? Do they feel that their town is super special? Uh, do they feel like they um, they are responsible for the town not losing anybody or something maybe they were doing? Uh, how do they respond to that? And what, what about science? Does science want to investigate this town? I mean, that all is really kind of fascinating. And the fact that there is distance between when the departure occurred and the current year, there's several years, the fact that, that that distance is happening um, it ha- has allowed kind of things to happen in society. So it's just enough time that society's really reacted to it. Of course, the world that we were in in the days after 9-11 is very different than the world that we were in two to three years later and even five years later. And I think that more than anything, the fact that the show has some distance between the departure and the events that are happening uh, in the current kind of day it allows so many of those things to really fester and manifest and build up uh, so that you enter into a world that is is different. Things have changed, not just because an event happened yesterday, but because an event happened several years before and society has responded in myriad and in often disturbing ways. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we're, we're running long, as Antonio and I tend to do, during our actual recaps of the shows. It's not uncommon for us to hit the two-hour mark or get really close to it, but let's start wrapping it up here. I want to just call out a bunch of people. That's what who, I'd like to do as well, yeah. Yeah, who gave their endorsements of the show. We asked for them on Twitter. We asked for you people who, who listen to the Leftovers podcast that we do or just watch the Leftovers, people who are already in our feeds, why you watch the show. And these are just some of the endorsements from po- some of the people who, who love the show who are not named Antonio Mazzaro and Josh Wiggler. This is from uh, at Rebecca Witz on Twitter who says it fills that lost shaped hole it's suspenseful I'm on the edge of my seat great characters great writing so intriguing um, Alex Koontz another great friend of the show said something similar he says it hits me in all of the right lost places it makes me excited to do extracurricular work to understand it R. Philly, another person who is regularly commenting on our Leftovers podcast and always listening and interacting, R. Philly says, it's possibly the most innovative, thought-provoking, and intelligent storytelling developed for TV I've encountered, uh, which is very a very big statement, but it's really, really good. Yeah, R. Philly is great. R. Philly's brought a lot to the table in our comments, and R. Philly's not backing down off that statement, and I thumbs up to R. Philly for that, because I, I totally agree. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it's, it is those things, uh, and it's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and I'm, there's no question about that in my mind. Uh, Martin Holmes, he writes and he says, on-screen grief counseling combined with lost weirdness, but without the burden of waiting for answers. Also, Carrie Coon. Uh, those, <laughs> that feels like a pretty pretty perfect summary of why this show is really, really terrific. Uh, John Rumsey said, the acting is excellent. I love that it provokes thought and that it is so different than anything else I watch. Um, we, we have this, this is kind of funny. Uh, Stephanie Townrow, who says, I've seen every episode and listened to the post-show recaps, and somehow I'm still really not into it, and yet I keep watching. Uh, so I think, I think that might I be think the that's case. some people's take on life, so that yeah, seems appropriate. I, I think so, too. Uh, from Citizen123, cool, intriguing story told in new ways, great acting, best show on TV right now. Um, we've got a bunch of others. Uh, Kevin Jacobson, it's a hypnotic, almost cathartic experience every week, and it has a controlled unpredictability that somehow works. I think that that line, a controlled unpredictability, really applies to this most recent episode that really inspired Antonio and I to do this special podcast. Podcast, International Assassin, which I said at the top of the show, one of my favorite episodes of anything I've ever seen. And it was so weird. It was so strange, but in a way that was really measured and controlled. Yeah, I actually like that uh, the uh, Anthony VGR kind of commented and said, uh, very emotional. I laugh a lot because it's like a joke that makes sense, even though it's ridiculous. It's beautifully done. And I don't yes. know if the, that he was talking about the show or life. Again, uh, you know, I just I think that those can go either way. Uh, I know he was talking about the show, but I mean, I think that that's the the level the show exists on and i think that controlled unpredictability if you will or joke that makes sense even though it's ridiculous it there is a lot of thing there are a lot of things that happen on screen with the shit with the show or things that you see that are really high concept let's just put it that way especially this last episode super high concept but it makes sense like it, yeah. it, it the yeah. world it, it the the show has earned high concept i mean yes the the world of the show is a, is a world where 
2% of the people disappeared. So it's already starting on a high concept level. But mostly, as I said, it dwells in the kind of day-to-day uh, with a lot of these characters in their kind of chosen role in response to what has happened. And, and yet, it, because it is so good at kind of establishing the stakes for those characters and for life, it can get into the high concept and it can be seemingly ridiculous and yet it's so beautifully done that it can just bring you nothing but pleasure. Um, and then two, two more that I'll just wrap up with is one is from my buddy a day at Hollywood a day who says, uh, the leftovers is the last great weird TV show. Uh, every episode leaves you confused, but wanting more. And I think that comment is echoed by Juan Rivera who wrote in and said, I love it because the show keeps asking the question, where is my mind? Uh, and that is a question that is very much actively on the show right now. And I think that that's one of the things that speaks to what some of the other people said about how this show fills, you know, the lost side hole in their hearts right now in that when lost was at its best it was just bugging with your brain nonstop and making you question everything um and there's something kind of enormously satisfying about knowing that the answers aren't coming that's so much more true to life and it's just it's it's just great it's great and i think that it is it's a constant head scratcher you're always trying to find meaning in something and your meaning is really what matters more so than what lindelof's meaning is and i think the fact that lindelof has been able to find a show where quite literally in the theme song of season two it's let the mystery be just let the mystery wash over you don't worry about the solution to the mystery that's not nearly as what's important as the journey that you're on i think that's a really really beautiful thing and that has always encapsulated what i had loved about lost and i think the leftovers is giving that concept a big old bear hug and it's not letting go and let's see how it goes with two episodes left in season two as of this recording but as of where we are right now I have I have rarely been so impressed by a television show. That's that's really what I could say about the leftovers. Is it's just it's just fascinating television, and it is done on such a high level that you really can't help but stand up and applaud pretty much every single aspect of this thing. I think that's right, and I, and I, we didn't always feel that way in season one, as we've said repeatedly. Uh, even though there were times in season one where we absolutely felt that way, and there are certain episodes that are just home runs. Uh, everything in season two has been a home run, uh, and it's one after. Or another and it's it's sort of a kind of a legendary run that's developing uh with this particular season of television we'll see if they stick the landing as as of this recording the season is not finished and i can't imagine that they'll botch it or that it'll be something that'll be frustrating or that we won't appreciate on any level because as we've said everything about the show exists on such a higher plane that even if we were a little bit frustrated with the story choice i think we would still be impressed with the performances and everything that was going on um that that really Really has been the focus of the creators. Uh, Damon Lindelof kind of talked about this week's episode, in fact, and said, even if you don't appreciate the choices that were made in the episode, you have to appreciate the performances. And, and he was right about that. Uh, even though I can't imagine people not appreciating the episode, uh, he was right that no matter what, at the end of the day, even if you strip away some of the things about the show, the core elements of it are so strong. The direction, the acting, the way it's shot, uh, the world that it exists in in that regard, and the, the kind of high bar that is set by the production of the show uh it it never kind of lets down and so that the show will always be that and it will always be so much more i think as well so let's just wrap up here and say I, I think that there's a few reasons why we wanted to do this first off you're going to be gorging on leftovers this weekend anyway why not gorge on the leftovers the show if you haven't done so already go spend the holiday weekend forget your family get rid of your family let them suddenly leave the house and you just focus down you arm up you hold yourself up in your house and you watch this show go to hbo to go if you don't have hbo go find somebody who does you probably know somebody yeah who so just get one of those passwords <laughs> off somebody it's not that big of a deal yeah, i'm sure there's other maybe you ways could, you, maybe you could pm me on twitter maybe i'll help you out there's there's creative ways of uh of finding your way to this show if you don't have hbo uh but but check out the show uh even if you're not listening to this on thanksgiving weekend if you've just somehow found this show uh found this podcast we're really just imploring you guys to watch something that i really think is deserving and worthy of your eyes and your attention uh it's a it's a it's a show unlike any other right now so really really check it out and i'm not above saying listen to our podcast too i think that antonio and i are doing a really good job here talking about the leftovers and unpacking a really really complicated show and doing so in a fun and entertaining way. I'm having a blast doing these podcasts with Antonio. We would love it if you guys came along for the ride. Everything we're doing on Post Show Recaps is tons of fun. You can subscribe, postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes for the leftovers feed, specifically postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. Antonio and I are also super active on Twitter with anyone who wants to be talking to us about the show. We love talking to you guys about the show, so tweet at us. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, 
one R. I'm at Round Howard. Um, we like to give a hashtag out at the end of these things. Usually we're a lot goofier than we've been today. So we don't really have any goofy hashtag unless you've got a suggestion, Antonio. I do not. I do not. Um, so let's just go with something really straightforward. Let's go with hashtag sudden arrival. If you are a sudden arrival to the leftovers to the podcast, if you're just interested in checking this thing out now that you've got our official endorsement of what we think is one of the most interesting shows on television right now, please send us that. We would love to hear from you guys. We hope to hear you guys for the last two episodes of season two of The Leftovers. Go back, binge watch, listen to what we've had to say about the show before. Call us out. Do whatever you want to do. But we're just having a blast, and we really hope that you guys are willing to take the dive as well. Antonio, anything else? No, I just want to thank everybody who kind of tweeted back at us and let us know um, why you like the show. We've certainly appreciated the everyone's kind of comments, tweets, uh, thoughts on the podcast, comments on the page at Post Show Recaps. We just really have have appreciated this experience not being a solitary one. And it is a it is an experience that I think welcomes multiple points of view and opinions because it is a show open to interpretation. And I I appreciate the fact that I think we're pretty sure that no one's ever going to be right about a lot of the flags that people are planting. And I think that that's that's really kind of fantastic because once you establish right away that there is no right answer, I think you start to learn about the people that you're talking to about this show. And we learn about each other and we learn about ourselves. And there just are few television shows, especially in the kind of fictional narrative genre that really give that opportunity, provide that opportunity. Uh, if it's something you're interested in to kind of expand your horizons, expand your viewpoint, um, challenge what you're thinking in a way that doesn't kind of come off as hostile or abrasive. Uh, this is a show that really welcomes that. And there should be kind of more community built around that because this is a show unlike many others that has an opportunity to truly kind of, uh, change the way we look and think uh, and lens the world. And I think that uh, for so many reasons, that's a big reason why I wish more people were watching this show because I would love to hear uh, as many viewpoints on the show as there are. Uh, and that, uh, that, that would be really valuable, I think to all of us. And so that's another reason for sure that we're doing this is just because not only do we think it's something that you'll appreciate, but the more people that are watching it and talking about it, the more value the show has. And that is, uh, something that I think is really important to me for sure. Yeah, I think The Leftovers is very conducive to community and conversation, and it is that way without having to stick anybody inside of a dumpster. So that's a plus. <laughs> I just you know? took a drink of water and almost spit it out on my keyboard. <laughs> that's a pro. That's a plus. Yeah. All right. So that's going to do it for us here. Antonio, thanks so much for sa- taking some time. Hope you guys, if you're listening to this during the holidays, hope everyone had a happy holiday. If you do not celebrate Thanksgiving, I just hope you're having a happy Thursday and a happy weekend. And if you're listening to this at some point in time that is far away from the holidays, just hope life is good. Hope everything's doing okay for you. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. And this is a, this is a show that's like a next day turkey sandwich. It's that good. So give it a shot. I really like what Stephen Lean, I think, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he said it's a depressing ray of sunshine. Yeah, <laughs> it I, really is. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so love it is that, that and so many other things. It's so many other things. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And um, we will hopefully hear from you all soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>